Okay, uh, folks, uh, welcome to uh, today's uh, NDIS seminar. Uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Professor Paige Fortnut of uh, Columbia University. She's the Harold Brown Professor of U.S. Foreign Policy and Security Policy um, in the Political Science Department there. Uh, she's author of two books, Does Peacekeeping Work? Um, and Peacetime, um, and she's published uh, numerous uh, articles um, in top uh, field and subfield uh, journals, including uh, International Organization, World Politics, and uh, International Studies uh, Quarterly. Um, now, this is a uh, march down memory lane for me, uh, <laughs> emphasizing uh, what an old fossil I am, but uh, I remember Paige uh, when she was a uh, uh, up-and-coming graduate student uh, at Harvard. Um, and so I have this image, and looking at her uh, dossier <laughs> and Vita, uh, I feel like in so many other things, uh, the world is passing me by. Which, uh, whether that's a function of uh, what a terrific uh, career uh, Paige has had since then, which I think it is, or whether it's uh, my own... Uh, sort of tapering off, I'll leave for my colleagues uh, to judge for themselves. Um, but uh, Paige, uh, welcome to uh, NDISC, and thank you for bringing the uh, lovely uh, Oregon weather to us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is not the weather we're having in Oregon right now. We don't get this weather until July in Oregon. Um, and thank you for not saying just how many years ago it was that we <laughs> knew each other back at Olin and at Harvard. So thank you, everybody, for coming. I'm really looking forward to your feedback. I'm going to talk today about a couple aspects of a kind of big, sprawling research project looking at terrorism in the context of civil wars. Um, and the larger project, uh, the basic question undergirding the larger project is why do some rebel groups use terrorism and some do not, or why do some use terrorism at some times and why do, why do others not? Um, and a lot of the terrorism literature focuses uh, almost entirely on the cases that do use terrorism. So looking at terrorism in the context of rebel, uh, rebel um, groups or civil wars, provides a universe of cases where there's variation. So all rebel groups are, by definition, organized. They're willing to use violence. They have a major political grievance. But some use terrorism and some don't. And that gives us some variation on the dependent variable that gives us some leverage to answer basic questions about the causes of terrorism. So just to give an example, why does a group like the Kurdish separatist group, the PKK, in Turkey, if you think about them in comparison to, in some ways, very similar Kurdish groups, the PUK and the KDP in Iraq, the PKK has, at least at certain times in its struggle against the Turkish state, resorted to terrorism, but the PUK and the KDP have not. So that's the kind of puzzle that I'm thinking about in this project. Um, and the, as I said, it's kind of a large, sprawling project. And the, the overall argument that I'm hoping to test here is um, it comes out of some work. I started actually in this project thinking about terrorism as an independent variable and looking at whether or not terrorism is effective, what, it, what its effects are on the outcomes of wars. Um, but in doing that, I had to think about why some, use, some groups use terrorism and others don't. And the argument of that paper that I started with is that terrorism is generally ineffective. 
but I think that when it gets used will vary um, with two kind of big sets of uh, factors. One has to do with the efficacy of terrorism. While I generally argue that it's ineffective as a political uh, strategy, it's more effective, or it should, I think, be more effective in some kinds of cases than in others, depending, for example, on the government's regime type, on how vulnerable a government is, or how dependent it is on tourism, which can be easily disrupted by terrorism. And then a lot of the argument, a lot of the reason that terrorism is ineffective is because it comes with very high legitimacy costs. But how high those legitimacy costs are also varies uh, with uh, the situation involved. So in the larger project, I'm thinking about variation in terms of rebel groups' aims, uh, the financing sources that rebels use to fund their fight, um, the extent to which the government is abusing civilians. That's one piece that I hope to get to talk about a little bit today. And then this setup also allows me to test some alternative arguments that are out there in the terrorism literature. So the paper that I distributed um, focuses on this question of whether or not terrorism is a weapon of the weak. So for me, this is an alternative argument that, as if you've read the paper, I'll give away the punchline here, I'm largely debunking. Um, but then my own argument has to do with this variation in efficacy and legitimacy costs. And depending on how long it takes me to get through the weapon of the weak piece, which is where I've done more of the work so far, um, if I've got time, I'll talk a little bit about what I'm finding so far on the government abuse of civilians and, and kind of where I'm headed. Um, with that piece of the project. Um, but I'm also happy to talk about some of the other pieces of the project if, if people want me to in Q&A. Um, okay, so before I go any farther, let me say what I mean by terrorism. So I define terrorism in this project as deliberately indiscriminate political violence against civilians um, to influence a wider audience. So this is in some ways like most, most, but not all definitions of terrorism in terms of focusing on violence against civilians. But I'm uh, using a narrower definition here than many do because most definitions of, of terrorism that focus just on intentional violence against civilians include a class of uh, targeting of civilians that is virtually ubiquitous in civil wars. Almost all rebel groups engage in it, almost all governments engage in it, but it's not what we normally think of sort of quintessentially as terrorism. And that is an attack on uh, a discriminate attack on specific people to try to control who they're collaborating with. So to, to attack civilians, to induce them to cooperate with your own side, or to punish them for cooperating with the other side. So that happens all the time. It's a very important part of civilian targeting. It's what a lot of the civilian targeting literature focuses on, but it's not falling under what I'm referring to as terrorism here. Um, so I'm thinking about things that are deliberately indiscriminate. So blowing up a bus, blowing up a marketplace, where you're not targeting somebody specifically for their collaboration, um, but you're trying to sort of send a, a wider um, signal to terrorize the population as a whole. So the randomness is kind of part of the point of these attacks. Um, I should also say that it's important um, in this project that the definition of, of who is using terrorism is based on the tactics that groups use and not the cause for which they fight. So under this definition, you can be both a freedom fighter and a terrorist. A terrorist. Um, and I should also say that the definition, uh, my empirically I'm looking here, the dependent variable is thinking about terrorism by rebel groups, but the definition of terrorism could also apply to states if they are deliberately targeting civilians in indiscriminate ways. And in fact, in the government abuse part of this project, I'm thinking about the relationship between the government's use of terrorism and the rebels' use of terrorism. 
Um, okay, so the piece of this project that looks at whether terrorism is a weapon of the weak. So this is, if you've read anything about terrorism, you've probably come across this concept. It's such a deeply embedded conventional wisdom in studies and uh, journalistic accounts of terrorism that it's sort of, it's beyond conventional wisdom and into the realm of cliche. Um, but what does that mean to say that terrorism is a weapon of the weak and is it empirically true? Um, so for some parts of the terrorism literature, it's baked into the definition. So, so terrorism is a weapon of the weak by definition. This is particularly true of um, folks who are trying to make a distinction between terrorism and insurgency or civil war. So terrorists are, think, are things that are groups that are you know, too weak to wage civil war or um, not get able to fight an insurgency. So if you bake it in in that sense, um, then any empirical argument about terrorism being a weapon of the weak is, is circular. Um, so that's not particularly useful for, for my project. You sometimes also see arguments about uh, terrorism being a weapon of the weak as a justification for terrorism. So the idea that a rebel group, you know, we don't have Apache helicopters, so we have to use suicide bombers, that kind of argument. So that's not an empirical argument, it's a, it's, um, a justification. But then a lot of the terrorism literature makes uh, an empirical claim, often rather implicitly, that groups that are weaker should be more likely to use terrorism. And that's what I want to focus on here. Is that, is that true? Is the truism true? Um, so uh, I sort of started this project thinking about, well, what do people mean when they say empirically that terrorism is a weapon of the weak? And they mean lots of different things. And so part of the paper is just trying to sort out the ways in which this claim gets made, what exactly people mean by weakness. Um, so I'll run through these rather uh, quickly here. So the most straightforward one is hypothesis one here, which is that how weak the rebels are relative to the government they fight should affect whether or not they use terrorism. Um, that's kind of the, the weapon of the weak argument at its most basic. Um, there is an argument, and I've got Nisha to thank for, for inserting hypothesis 1A here. There's a, there, in the literature, you could make the argument that um, weaker groups are more likely to use terrorism because they're weak, but because they're weak, they're, they're then not able to kill quite as many people. So that's sort of a variation on hypothesis 1. Um, hypothesis two is actually quite similar to the first one, but it's focusing not on the relative strength of the rebels and the government, but just on the government piece. So saying that rebels who are fighting against a stronger government, who sort of by definition are then weaker, are more likely to use terrorism. That's a fairly common uh, argument in the literature. Some have made the argument that rough terrain should affect whether or not rebels use terrorism, uh, basically because uh, rough terrain is favorable to insurgents. It makes it easier for them to fight their fight and therefore basically strengthens them and makes them less likely then to turn to terrorism. That's an argument that's sort of thrown out a little bit in passing, but it's a, a variant of the weapon of the weak argument. Um, there's a whole kind of subsection of the terrorism literature that thinks about territorial control, making the argument that uh, rebel groups that control territory will be less uh, likely to uh, resort to terrorism, that they don't need to resort to terrorism. Then there's a variation which is a little bit different, which is thinking about weakness not in terms of military strength or the conditions that allow a group to wage insurgency, but the, uh, how, how um, popular a rebel group is with the population that it claims to uh, be fighting for, that groups that have larger uh, popular support will be less likely to turn to terrorism. And there are a couple of arguments that have to do with terrorism and timing. One of them is the idea that groups use terrorism quite early in their conflict as they're trying to build support. In, in that sense, it's kind of a variation of the popular support argument. But the idea is that groups, there's a, there's a line in the literature um, that you know the terrorist groups 
uh, hope to be insurgents when they grow up. So they sort of start off as terrorists and then they turn into something else and they then forego using terrorism later in their fight. So if that's true, we should expect to see terrorism in the early stages of a conflict, but not in the later ones. And then there's almost kind of the opposite, that there are other arguments that, think that would point to the idea that you'd see terrorism later in the fight, that groups turn to terrorism out of desperation, either because they're on the verge of defeat, and even though terrorism is generally ineffective, it's kind of a gamble for resurrection to, to try to weaken the government just uh, before rebels get wiped out, um, or the idea that groups will turn to terrorism late in their conflict if other kinds of methods have not been effective, and they'll, then they'll try terrorism. So that's kind of a, a bit of a laundry list, but it's, those are all of the different ways, at least that I've been able to find. If others have other variations, I'd, I'd love to hear them of the ways that people uh, kind of use this um, concept of the weapon of the week. Um, I won't spend a lot of time going through the specific measures that I use for the quantitative part of this. I'm happy to come back and talk about uh, any of the particular measures um, later if anyone is interested. Um, so I've got, I try to kind of use a couple different measures where possible to think about robustness to different kinds of measures. I control for a bunch of things, uh, the regime type of the uh, government that the rebels are fighting against, whether or not they have external support, which is in a sense another um, a kind of uh, weakness or strength. Uh, the incompatibility that they're fighting over uh, with the government, the intensity of the conflict, uh, whether or not we're talking about the Cold War period and then some stuff that's sort of technical has to do with the uh, global terrorism database. Um, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about how I measure whether and how much terrorism uh, groups use because this is uh, new data that I've put together with, a couple of, with the help of a couple of grad students at Columbia. We've created this data set which we're referring to as TAC for Terrorism and Armed, Armed Conflict. And we've got data on the 467 uh, rebel groups or non-state actors who are involved in uh, armed conflict in the UCD, pre-OUCDP armed conflict database from 1970 to 2013. And when I started this project, I naively thought that it wouldn't be that hard to just take the GTD data and sort of match it up with the UCDP data. I didn't think it would just be like a simple merge command, but I didn't think it would be nearly as hard as it was. Um, it turned out we had to dig into GTD, scoop out every event that might plausibly be connected to a particular rebel group, and then go through this massive coding uh, project. We've coded over 9,000 potential matches. Um, we couldn't automate it because there are lots of sort of funny things about acronyms and spellings and translations and uh, rebel groups that are identified in the press by the name of their leader, not the name of the group, and all kinds of complications, um, groups, factions, and umbrellas. Um, and then this, uh, there's an aspect, if any of you have used GTD, uh, there are lots and lots of events in GTD where the perpetrator is listed by a kind of what we call a generic descriptor. So for example, uh, Kurdish separatists. Is that the PKK? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so we've gone through this hand coding, coming from Portland, Oregon, I like to think of it as artisanal data. Um, <laughs> uh, we've, we've coded all of these things and we have sort of different levels of matching, sort of things that are quite obviously a direct match, things that are linked, maybe it's an umbrella group, uh, things, these generic descriptors, we have all of these different codings and then researchers can include these different levels or not, depending on their research project, and also look at robustness to findings to these different levels of matching. So we've tried to kind of create this very flexible way to deal with this problem of 
If you're only counting the, the very clear direct matches, you're almost certainly undercounting the use of terrorism. If you're including everything, including the generic descriptors or even the many, many uh, events that take place in a country that's engaged in a civil war that where the perpetrator is just listed as unknown, then you're definitely overcounting. So we can kind of triangulate uh, around it that way. And then we're using GTD. GTD's um, definition of uh, terrorism, not sure I said what GTD stands for. That's the Global Terrorism Database, which is now housed at START at the University of Maryland. Um, GTD uh, has a very broad definition of, of terrorism, much broader than the definition I'm using here. So we filter down using the attack type and target type and sometimes target subtype to try to hone in on these deliberately indiscriminate attacks. So we rule out assassinations. We rule out uh, uh, attacks on government or police. Um, we are looking at sort of public kinds of targets. So attacks on transportation as opposed to targets um, you know, on a business or something like that to try to get at this uh, deliberately indiscriminate nature of attacks. And I'm happy to talk about the specifics of what we include and what we don't include in that. Um, again, we have sort of two versions of this, a more restrictive one where we include fewer attacks that we think are most likely to be indiscriminate, but we're probably missing some stuff, and a less uh, restrictive version that includes more and probably gets some things that were not actually indiscriminate attacks. So kind of, again, an under and over counting to try to triangulate around these uncertainties. Um, TAC uh, includes several different counts, uh, the total number of attacks, the number of fatal attacks, the number of mass attacks, and the total number of fatalities in attacks for a year. In the Weapon of the Week paper, I'm looking at the total number of attacks and the total number of fatalities uh, in attacks. But again, you can sort of look at robustness again across these different kinds of counts. So this is what the dependent variable looks like. This is the total count of incidents. Um, this is the distribution. As, as you can see, most of the time, most rebels do not engage in terrorism. There are lots and lots and lots of zeros. Uh, and when they do, the number of attacks tends to be fairly low. So you know, three quarters of the cases, there are, there are five or fewer attacks in a given year. But the distribution is quite skewed. You get this long tail out here. Uh, Sendero Luminoso in Peru had a lot of attacks in 1984. ISIS in Iraq in 2013. Syrian insurgents. This one is a little bit misleading because UCDP puts a bunch of groups together. So that's the, the number of attacks for all of them lumped together there. Um, if we look at it in terms of fatalities, the distribution is very similar, mostly uh, zero fatalities in a given year, um, but again, the tail is quite long. Here there's an outlier of the attacks of 9-11. Um, that's a case that arguably shouldn't be in UCDP because it wasn't a civil war, isn't a civil war. Um, so it's a, I drop it out in some robustness tests, but keep it in in others. But you can see how, how unusual a, a year that was in terms of the data. Um, OK, I'm not going to say a lot about the particular regression model I use. It's a zero-inflated negative binomial model, if anybody is interested. And there is one thing that's sort of relevant about this kind of model, which is that it, it estimates two models. One is an estimate of um, the number of attacks or fatalities depending on which dependent variable I'm using. Um, in, that, in that part of the model, a positive coefficient indicates that that variable is associated with more terrorism. And it also estimates what is referred to in the Zimb language as the inflate model, which is an estimate of whether terrorism is used at all. It's sort of one way you can think about it. Um, and there, the coefficient signs are flipped. So a positive coefficient there means you're more likely to be a zero. That is a negative effect on terrorism. And I'll, when I put up some graphs, I'll sort of walk through that again. Um, I already said this about what I'm controlling for. 
because in the early work on this, I was finding lack of support for the weapon of the week hypotheses, um, and so I'm arguing sort of debunking this conventional wisdom. The results that I show in the paper I kind of cherry pick the set of results that's most favorable to the weapon of the week argument. So in the robustness test, things get worse for the weapon of the week argument than what I'm going to show you here in a second. So for example, whether or not I drop the, the US Al-Qaeda case, um, alternative measures of some of the controls, and so forth. Um, okay, so this is a table that's in the paper that's probably a little bit hard to read. You don't need to specific, you know, hone in on specific Ys and Ns here. But what this is is just a summary of the results um, showing whether coefficients in the many, 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 many regressions that I ran for this using all of these different versions of the dependent variable and lots of different ways of measuring all of these forms of weakness, whether coefficients go in the direction that was expected by the relevant weapon of the week hypothesis and whether or not it was significant. So the Ys are things that went in the right direction for weapon of the week, the Ns went against it. Um, and if weapon of the week is you know, as true as it seems to be from reading the terrorism literature, you would expect almost all Ys and lots and lots and lots of stars. And you do see some Ys. It's rare to see Ys with stars. There are a few. There's some indication that maybe, um, at least for the inflate part of the model, state capacity goes in the right direction. For the very strongest rebels, you see less terrorism in the count models. Um, but there are also lots and lots and lots of no's, um, sometimes even things that are significantly in the wrong direction, and lots of cases where things just aren't statistically significant, where we're not seeing the strong pattern that we should see. And just to, this is not in the paper, these are graphs that I put together after I sent the paper. Um, they're not the be most beautiful graphs yet, but they're getting there. Um, this is just a way to kind of visualize these effects. So again, as I mentioned, the zero inflated negative binomial has these two aspects, the count and the inflate model. Um, and the, one, the best way to interpret this is to think like things that cause more terrorism, the the markers should be on the inside of these red zero lines, and significantly so. These are the confidence intervals. So things should be like over here and not overlapping the zero line if there was a significant effect in the way that the weapon of the week hypothesis would suggest. Um, and so this is, this is a, the first set of measures here. So uh, relative military weakness measured in a couple of different ways, and then state capacity measured in a couple of different ways. Um, and as you'll see, we're not seeing really clear support for the weapon of the weak hypothesis. There are a few places where sort of things kind of go in the right direction, and there's brief kind of, some of those are statistically significant. Oh, the, the various different lines for each of these groupings are different versions of those levels of matching uh, perpetrators and UCDP groups, um, and the more and least restrictive measures of terrorism. So these are just sort of robustness tests. Um, but lots of things are on the wrong side of the line, lots and lots of stuff not statistically significant. Um, the next set of hypotheses, hypotheses visualize the same way. There's really no effect of rough terrain. Um, territorial control kind of goes in the right direction, but not at all statistically significant. Um, popular support, it depends a lot on how you measure popular support. Um, some suggestion that maybe things are in the, in the correct direction, but not robustly so and not very clearly so. And then the stuff about timing, really no effect of uh, terrorism on the early stages of conflict. Um, and the verge of defeat arguments all kind of go in the, the wrong direction, sometimes even significantly in the wrong direction. Um, so basically, we're not seeing a lot of support for the weapon of the week argument. Um, so just to kind of wrap up that piece of the project, there's some important caveats here. 
The main one is probably the selection bias involved in looking at terrorism in civil wars. So when I first was working on this, I was thinking about just the, the really full-scale civil wars, a thousand battle deaths, um, and, and one of the arguments I kind of ran into was, well, maybe if you looked at lower levels of conflict, you're selecting the very strongest groups. So that's why I moved to using the UCDP data, which goes down to a pretty low level of conflict. All you need to be in the UCDP data is 25 battle deaths in a year. So there are pretty, some pretty minor conflicts that you've never heard of that are involved uh, in this data. Um, so even in that wider span of kind of the spectrum of the independent variable, I'm not seeing strong support for the weapon of the week hypothesis. But it's possible that if I had data on groups that were involved in political conflicts even at lower levels that we might see support for Weapon of the Week. The problem is that while we have some data on groups that use terrorism that don't reach the 25 battle death, death level, we don't have a lot of great uh, information on the non-terrorist groups that might be at that low level. Um, one way I try to get around this a little bit is that I do, in the data, I do include for conflicts that at some point reach 25 battle deaths, I include years in which they do not reach 25 battle deaths. So groups that are maybe haven't yet gotten there but do later, I'm able to examine that. Um, but I haven't got uh, groups that aren't involved, aren't, don't ever reach the level of 25 battle deaths. Um, some of the measures and proxies aren't perfect. That's true of all, all data and particularly data on civil war, but there are some problems I talk about in the paper with some of the specific measures. Um, so those are, those are important caveats to keep in mind in terms of the conclusions that I can draw from this paper. So some versions of the weapon of the week argument fare better than mm -hmm. others. With some measures, it seems like popular support maybe does go in the way predicted. And for some measures, it's uh, significant, but it's not particularly robust. Um, the very, very strongest groups in terms of military capacity and fighting capacity do seem to be less likely to use terrorism, but those groups are quite rare. Usually, rebel groups are, are relatively weak relative to the government. And within those groups that are pretty weak, it doesn't seem that being weaker or stronger is driving terrorism in the way that the weapon of the week argument would suggest. Um, so I think this is, I mean, this is a kind of a funny paper because it's a null finding, but I think if you are familiar with the terrorism literature and how common this claim is, it's a very surprising null finding. We should see strong support for this argument, and we, we don't. Um, so the conclusion is that terrorism you know, may not be a weapon of the week. And so when you are reading the terrorism literature or journalistic accounts that make these claims, you should think about what's being said. So sometimes what's being said is, is just that terrorism is, is a weapon of the week by definition. But if that's true, then we can't use terrorism as a term when we're talking about really strong groups, like the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, who, while they were defe defeated eventually, were a quite strong rebel group, or ISIS, for that matter, which is controlled territory and is, has been a very strong rebel group. So if they're not using terrorism, then I'm not quite sure what we mean by terrorism. Um, maybe people are using it in terms of a, making a moral justification for terrorism, in which case they're not making an empirical argument, and so what I'm saying here isn't particularly relevant. Um, but if people are making an empirical claim, you should take it with a very, very large grain of salt. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of a summary of that piece of the project. Um, I'll talk a little bit about this other piece, testing the relationship between uh, govern government abuse and terrorism. Um, this is very uh, work that's in very early stages, even earlier than I hoped it would be by now, in part because I broke my hand a couple of weeks ago, which makes it hard to type things into Stata and type up results and that sort of thing. Um, 
So this is, but this is very preliminary, and I'm still I've like tested a few of the early hypotheses, and I'm still thinking through some other hypotheses. But that makes it a really useful time for me to present it and get feedback on it from from <laughs> from you all. So I'm I'm looking forward to your feedback. I'm not going to say a lot about the literature review slide. Um, this is an overly texty slide, uh, but I will say a couple things just very briefly about about the relationship between government abuse and terrorism uh, in the literature, which is. In part that there, well, A, that this is an old story. People have talked about this for a long time. Um, but the empirical studies trying to link government and abuse and terrorism um, come to very mixed findings. There isn't consensus in the literature. Um, and part of the reason I think there may not be consensus is that there's a conflation in the literature between people who are talking about the effect of repression or the level of grievance that a rebel group is, is struggling against and that, the, the, that and its effect on whether there's political violence in the first place or the effect on terrorism more specifically. And one of the things that I can do with this project, because I'm selecting on cases where there already is political violence by looking only at civil wars, is I can kind of separate these two effects and look just specifically at the effect on terrorism per se as opposed to political violence more generally. Um, that's all I'll say about that slide. Um, okay, so legitimacy, costs, and terrorism. What, so by legitimacy, I just mean worthiness of support. Fairly straightforward concept. And I think about the legitimacy of a rebel group as having two components. One is the legitimacy of the ends for which, the, for which they fight, the grievance or the injustice that they claim to be uh, trying to struggle against. And that's tied very clearly to the legitimacy of the government. So rebels, by definition, are fighting against a government, either to overthrow a government altogether or to separate one piece of territory from that government's control. And the more illegitimate the government, the more legitimate the, art, the, the fight against it. Right? That's fairly straightforward. Um, so government abuse should, in general, increase the legitimacy of the rebels, although it's also true that for some governments, their legitimacy depends not just on their you know, sort of upholding of rights and freedoms, but also on their ability to provide security and enhance order. So that's a slight complication in the relationship between government legitimacy and, and rebel legitimacy. Um, the second component of a rebel group's legitimacy is the means by which they are fighting. Um, and so using terrorism undermines legitimacy of rebels in general. Sometimes people will argue that it is justified, but it requires justification. It's not on its face a, uh, a legitimate uh, way to fight war, to indiscriminately attack civilians. Um, so the empirical question, and so the, these are kind of analogous to the just war concepts of uh, use uh, ad bellum and use in bello in, in a way. And so the empirical question is, does the legitimacy of the rebels' cause, the, the grievance that they're fighting against, does that affect their choice of means? Um, and so um, I'm going to skip over this slide, I think, in the interest of time. The basic point here is that both legitimacy and terrorism require an audience, so they're both sort of outwardly uh, focused. So the hypotheses, the sort of basic hypotheses here, there are two of them that go uh, in the same direction and one that goes in the opposite direction. So the two that go in the same direction are the idea that the more legitimate the cause that a group is fighting for, that is, the more the government is, is abusing its own civilians or repressing its own civilians, the more legitimate the rebels cause. And so they have sort of a, a bank of legitimacy that they can spend down. They are more forgiven for using terrorism. So this is basically an ends justifies a means kind of argument. Uh, the more legitimate the ends, the easier it is to get away with illegitimate means. 
Um, there's also a reciprocity logic that points in the same direction, that just through a simple um, kind of tit for tat, that the more the government is targeting civilians or abusing civilians, uh, the more the rebels might do so. Um, and it's, it's a little bit hard to separate those empirically from each other because they point in the same direction. But there's another argument that goes in the opposite direction, which is that when a government is highly abusive or when it's attacking civilians um, during a civil war, it kind of opens a strategic opportunity for rebels to take the moral high ground and to try to use that to garner po uh, popular support. And so they might be more likely to um, actually behave better when the government is behaving worse as a way to try to generate this kind of difference in support um, to get international support or domestic support. And that would suggest that the, the opposite relationship. Um, so when we've got two hypotheses sort of pointing in opposite directions, you know, maybe we'll just get kind of muddled, kind of null results because they cancel each other out. But where I'm headed with this is to try to think about conditional effects. Why would one of these dynamics dominate over the other and what kinds of um, contexts? So this is, this is, we're now in kind of speculative hypothesizing territory here, and I'd be particularly interested in your thoughts on these hypotheses or, or other kinds of hypotheses that might lead to conditional effects. So one thing I've thought of is that maybe in more polarized conflicts, there are fewer kind of people sitting on the fence whose support is up for grabs. And so taking the moral high ground doesn't really help you if everybody's already decided who they're fighting for. Um, and so in more polarized conflicts, you might, you might see the sort of first dynamic of government abuse leading to more rebel terrorism and not the moral high ground argument. Um, and so maybe you know, in identity conflicts, for example, where things are more polarized, you might see that one, the, one, the first dynamic dominate the second. Um, similarly, thinking about the same thing but with respect to external support, um, in some contexts, patterns of you know, superpower or great power support for government or rebels is pr are pretty rigid, for example, during the Cold War. And so again, taking the moral high ground, you know, the government still, you know, the US is still gonna fund whichever side in the rebel, uh, in the civil war that it tends to fund, um, no matter what they do, if you're in the context of a proxy war during the Cold War. Um, but maybe after the Cold War, when external support is more up for grabs, then maybe this, there's more of this incentive for groups to take the moral high ground when the government is abusing civilians more. Uh, similarly, if the government is more vulnerable to sanctions, maybe that gives rebels more of an incentive to take the moral high ground argument as opposed to sort of use up their store of legitimacy by, by using terrorism. Um, I was trying to sort of think through this kind of general concept that there are some groups and some leaders who just don't turn to terrorism no matter what. You sort of think of Nelson Mandela, although the ANC did in fact um, engage in some terrorist attacks. They were in general pretty restrained. There's sort of this idea of like, and it kind of boils down to sort of a great man theory of rebellion, and that's we don't really have we don't have good great man variables. Um, so I was trying to think of what kinds of groups might be less likely to turn to terrorism, even when the government is is doing so. And one thought I have is to think about if the group has a history of nonviolent struggle uh, in the past or in the present. Sometimes groups engage in both nonviolent and violent struggle at the same time. Um, maybe we would see more of the kind of the, the latter kind of um, dynamic dominating the, the former. Um, and then I, it's also possible that there's sort of an incentive early on in the conflict um, to, or in the decision of whether or not to use terrorism at all, you might, uh, there might be an incentive to take the moral high ground. But once you have used terrorism, you get branded as a terrorist and using less of it 
isn't going to really help you very much. And so you might actually, this is where the zero inflated negative binomial um, setup of have, having one model that sort of helps you predict whether a group uses terrorism at all and another model that helps predict how much they use terrorism can be exploited a little bit. We might see different kinds of effects in the inflate and the, and the count parts of the model. Um, and maybe there's a, a, a sort of an effect of once a group has used terrorism, you should see the first dynamic uh, predominate, that the more the government is abusive, the more it will use terrorism, uh, whereas groups that have not yet used terrorism are taking the sort of moral high ground route. So again, very speculative, and there's probably uh, more to say on all of that. Um, so in terms of data, I'm still pulling data together here. I'm thinking you know, about these sort of two aspects of government abuse. One is overall levels of repression and following most of the literature on repression, I'm thinking about physical integrity rights. Um, so torture, killing, uh, imprisonment, disappearances, those kinds of things, um, as well as religious repression and ethnic discrimination if it is an identity conflict. So, so far I've looked at the human rights protection scores that uh, Chris Ferris has put together. Um, there's some other data sets out there that are useful that I intend to, to look at as I go forward with this. For ethnic conflicts, the ethnic power relations uh, data will be useful. In terms of the state's conduct during the war, the, um, there's the one-sided violence uh, data set that encodes both rebels' use of one-sided violence, but also government's use of one-sided violence. So that's a useful data set for me. It has some limitations. It's only available after 1989, and it is lumping together discriminate and indiscriminate kinds of attacks. So it's not making this distinction between terrorism and the sort of try to, trying to control collaboration that I'm, I'm kind of starting off with. Uh, there's some other data sets out there, including one that Nisha and I have been working on for an embarrassing number of years um, that, that will be useful for some parts of this project. But I have, I have yet to pull those in and really start looking at them uh, empirically. So again, the model here will be a zero-inflated negative binomial model, controlling for a bunch of things that might confound the relationship between government abuse and terrorism. Um, and again, sort of running all these robustness for, for different versions of TAC, different kinds of controls, et cetera. Um, so this is very, very preliminary. Um, in fact, so preliminary, I haven't even relabeled the, the labels on the graph yet, so sorry. I did these on the plane. Um, so again, the structure of uh, these graphs is that things that, that are predicting more terrorism, we should see uh, coefficients on the inside of the zero lines and significantly uh, separated from those zero lines. So we're not seeing really clear results here. I'm not seeing a lot of support for the first set of hypotheses that the more government abuse uh, the more terrorism. Um, there's a little bit of support, particularly um, with the, this is the one-sided violence um, measure for things going in the opposite direction, for the moral high ground argument. But the, I think what's going on here is that these results, these two different dynamics are kind of pushing against each other. So I'm not yet looking at the kinds of conditional effects that might be able to separate this out. The one-sided violence measure, as I said, is only available after 1989. So maybe part of the reason that we get a different uh, set of effects there is because this is after the Cold War when um, the when external support is more up for grabs. So maybe that that's that's maybe very tentatively support for that kind of conditional uh, hypothesis. Um, and there's maybe a little bit of uh, support for the idea that you kind of, at least on the this first one, this is the Chris Ferris uh, measure 
I should have said this before, one of the first of these is looking is a lagged measure, so the, the level of abuse in the previous year, and then this AB is for antebellum, so this is the level of abuse before the war starts. Because here I'm trying to separate out the effect of repression on terrorism, but terrorism also has an effect on repression, right? So there's a reciprocal relationship that I need to try to untangle here uh, methodologically. Um, so maybe we see some of this idea that there's an effect of the moral high ground argument on, on whether or not you use terrorism on the inflate part of the model. I'm going in one direction, but then uh, the count measure going in the opposite direction. So once you're using terrorism, then the fact that the government is using more has, is more repressive might lead you to use more of it. So this is all very, like, this is incredibly sketchily tentative, but this is sort of where I've gotten to so far in this project. Um, this is what I'm thinking about for data sources for the conditional hypotheses. Um, some of these, they're sort of straightforward, some of them not so much. One thing I'm particularly struggling with is how to sort of think about this idea of states, of whether uh, external party support is up for grabs. So there's the Cold War versus non-Cold War. Maybe a more refined version of that would be to think about actual proxy wars where the Soviet Union and the US were funding opposite sides in a, in a uh, civil war as opposed to other kinds of wars. But if people have other suggestions for good measures for that kind of up-for-grabbedness gra up of external support, I'd, I'd love to hear them. And, and same with the idea of kind of why some groups just don't uh, even really consider the idea of using terrorism. Some, you know, I'm thinking about the history of nonviolence, but there might be other kinds of proxies for that dynamic that would be useful. Um, and you know, invite me back in a little while, and I'll give you some results on <laughs> on this part of the project. So let me just uh, wrap up by saying, kind of coming back to the the bigger picture and the larger project. So what I'm hoping to end up with at the end of this project, there are lots and lots of hypotheses, empirical hypotheses in the terrorism literature about specific things that lead to terrorism. But it's a little, it's all kind of a laundry list. So what I'm hoping to do in this project is to bring some coherence, at least to part of it, to think about these two sets of factors that have to do with variation in how uh, efficacious terrorism should be and how high the legitimacy costs are for terrorism in a specific context. Um, and as I mentioned, two of the things that I think are useful about this project are its ability to test arguments about uh, terrorism systematically because there is variation in the phenomenon of interest. We can compare groups that could have used terrorism but didn't, or use terrorism in some areas and some uh, parts of their struggle sometimes and not others. We get that kind of variation in leverage, which has been sorely lacking in the terrorism literature. Um, and then the second thing, as I also mentioned, is this ability to separate the effects of factors on whether or not there's political conflict and violent conflict in the first place, and then on the specific strategic choice to use terrorism as a tactic to separate those things um, out empirically. So where I'm heading with this project, there's lots more to do quantitatively using the TAC data, uh, more to do on, on these parts of the project and then also on those other parts of the project that I started off with, lots, lots more to do here. Um, and then I'm hoping to supplement that with qualitative field work, um, possibly some micro-level data within particular conflicts and, and survey work, but also interviews and, and sort of more straightforward kinds of qualitative work. So I've droned on for too long, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Paige. Thank you. I was going to say wow, but after that talk, <laughs> you can't say wow anymore. You get that one? Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow, there's no wow. Yeah. No wow, no <laughs> wow after this talk. Um, the betting window is already open, and we got a lot of people in line. I forgot, though, uh, oh, somebody else.
Um, uh, before I do that, uh, for those of you who are not uh, regular habitues of uh, MDISC seminars, if after this uh, non-WOW talk you want to get on our uh, mailing list, uh, please put your uh, email there. So uh, I've got uh, Sebastian, um, I've got Dan, Carrie, Siok Jun, Nisha, uh, I've got uh, Jihei, and Ben. Anybody else on the initial list? Okay, Sebastian, please. Um, this may seem like an out of left field question, um, but I, I'm not steeped in the terrorism literature. In fact, I venture to say I know nothing about it. Um, but this whole Weapons of the Week claim seems completely ludicrous to me on the face <laughs> of it. And so I agree with you. Um, you know, terrorism is a strategy that you use to get political ends. So is Blitzkrieg. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can, you'll use whatever strategy works best to, or you think will work to get what you're trying to get. Mm -hmm. um, and I tell my students all the time, the United States and Britain used terrorism on a massive scale in World War II, right? They killed hundreds of thousands of civilians, and it was terrorism um, for a political end. Mm -hmm. um, so it just seems like a crazy claim. So it's a sociological, I guess, sociology of knowledge question. Mm -hmm. Where do you think this crazy idea came from? Um, <laughs> what's the genesis of the idea? Uh, why are we in 2017 and you have to go to enormous lengths of data collection and all the rest of it to knock this idea down when it's just dumb? <laughs> I agree. Um, I don't know where it comes from, but my hunch is that it comes from two things. One is definitions of terrorism that bake weakness in. So lots of definitions of terrorism exclude state actors altogether. States by definition cannot engage in terrorism. So the US and the UK did not engage in terrorism by those definitions, right? And that's, you know, that's there's power in, in defining terms, right? States like to call terrorists the things that the other side does, not what they do. Um, and states have more power, so they get to set the terms. So I think part of the problem of the definition, of definitions of terrorism that focus only on non-state actors, is that it, it, it bakes this weakness. Like rebels in general, are they always start out weaker than the government, um, and they usually stay weaker than the government. Um, and so if terrorism is something that non-state actors do and non-state actors are weaker, then terrorism is a weapon of the weak. And then that gets exacerbated by more specific definitions that bake it in, right? So this is, this is something that uh, is not civil war. It's this sort of lower level of conflict or something like that. That kind of uh, exacerbates this sort of definitional um, issue. So I think there's there's both a kind of politicized part of the definition, and then this kind of, at least with respect to weapon of the week, a kind of tautology that's baked in. And then that kind of seeps out into the literature, and people start making empirical claims. Even though if you've defined it in, you can't make an empirical claim, right? Because it's by definition tautological. Uh, that's my sense of sort of. Um, if you read kind of the older terrorism literature from way back, it's more kind of a, it's not an empirical claim, it's almost like a description of terrorism, is that terrorism is something that is of weak groups. Um, and then it becomes, as the terrorism literature evolves, it kind of seeps in that way. So it, I think it's a kind of unintentional seepage. 
Um, it's an actors versus preferences take that nobody ever bothered to sort out in the first place, right? Terror what do you mean? Well, you know, we're told from day one that you have to separate actors from their preferences mm -hmm. the, and their strategies, mm -hmm. right? And, but what's happened here is the actors and the strategies have right. been conflated. Yes, yes, right. Um, and so a lot of it is the idea of calling, you know, groups are either terrorist or not as opposed to groups either use terrorism yeah. or don't or use terrorism today and don't use it tomorrow, right? They're, they're kind of, and that I think a lot of that is because of this, it's politically useful to brand the other guy as a terrorist, right? So I, there's a lot of violence done to the definition of terrorism um, in sort of pursuit of political aims. And then that seeps in, it certainly seeps into kind of the policy conversation about terrorism, the journalistic conversation, but it also has seeped into the academic literature. So part of what I'm trying to do in this project is to have a very, as objective as possible definition of terrorism, to separate it from the aims that a group is fighting for, to separate it from whether they're the, they're the incumbent power or the you know revisionist power, the government or the non-state actor, that if you engage in this type of attack, that is terrorism, no matter who you are, and yeah. Can I ask one quick follow-up? Do you think 9-11 had anything to do with it? Uh, no, uh, with with like this the, weapon of the week claim. No, because it it def it, it goes way back. Yeah, yes, definitely before 9/11. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, some of it's like stuff. I think the first uh, I cited in the paper, Crozier is kind of um, credited with using the term first, and that's in the 70s, I think. Um, yeah. Okay. Hey, is the kind of normative oversimplification that might address your point about uh, aims, which is terrorism is the poor man's war and war is the rich man's terrorism. What I'm saying by that is, you know, there, it's all war and it's with a political objective of some sort. Um, so I have one sort of maybe factual question that might have an interesting answer. And then I also want you to expand on uh, what you meant by by definition. So I don't know what the average length of wars was, civil wars from 1970 to 2010. But if it's the seven-year average that's cited by Fearon and others, mm -hmm. then it would seem to me to generate a lot more zeros in those those graphs, that lots of zeros, and then by time and by fatality. Because if the average length is seven years out of forty, you'd actually be looking at maybe eighty-five to eighty-four. You're only in the you're only in the data in the war years. Okay. So so it's not that every state is in the data for that whole gotcha. time period. It's only the there's a little caveat to that because I'm also looking at some years where there are lulls and things like that, but but not everybody's in for the same amount of time. Because if I was right, then it would have indicated that maybe civil wars with terrorism last a lot longer. Well, that is empirically true. Um, so in the in the paper that I started with on the effectiveness of terrorism, uh, the, to summarize the findings of that paper very briefly, groups who use terrorism are in the data that I have, which is only full-scale wars for that for that paper, they never win their wars outright. They're significantly less likely to achieve a negotiated settlement and concessions, but their wars last longer. So it's kind of it's good for making your last your war last or your rebel organization survive longer, um, but it's not good for achieving your political ends. Okay, so when you talked about something's true by definition, I wanted you to expand a little bit on that because it okay. raises a few questions. So. For example, if there's terrorism before conflicts are coded as civil war, maybe that pre-period would be one in which terrorists are weak. Then almost by def is that what you mean by definite by time it's a civil war, 
they're much stronger, right? So some sort of by definition, um, you know. So again, like when are terrorists strong? When are they weak? Is it part of how you code when civil wars are? Um, you know, and what is terrorism if it's not a weapon of the weak? Um, is it, as Sebastian said, a weapon of the strong? Um, sorry, I'm yeah. yeah, it's just a strategy. Just That's a the strategy. answer to that so, part. Yeah, so I wonder about that. Uh, so, okay, so uh, groups are in the data if they, at some point between 1970 and 2014, hit 25 battle deaths. Um, so, there, so as I said at the end with the caveats, there is a selection that groups that never reach that level of conflict, whether they use terrorism or not, are not in the data at all. And so if it's true empirically that if we had data on those groups, if we had that universe of cases, that there was more terrorism than there is in the groups that do make it into my data, then that would be an argument in favor of the weapon of the week. So I'm, uh, there is a selection bias problem here. I've minimized it by going down to just 25 battle deaths, but I haven't eliminated it. Um, the problem, as I said, is that we don't know whether groups that never reach that 25 battle death group, whether they're more likely to use terrorism than groups that eventually get stronger. They might also be more likely to use nonviolence, or maybe they use both. We, we just don't know. Now, there are some data sets, some regional data sets that I can, I haven't yet, but I can look at to, that, that kind of give you all political opposition groups or something like that, or all, all political opposition groups that use violence. Um, so it is, in some ways, I can kind of get, get at it, but I can't get at it with, with these data. Um, and, and you can't get at it with data sets on terrorism because they only have the terrorist groups in there, right? Um, so, um, so but, but another way that I try to get around this is to say, okay, I do have data on groups that eventually or at some point hit the 25 battle death threshold. I have data on uh, on them before that, before they hit that level. So one nice thing about the UCDP data is it has a start date, which is the year of the first battle death. So it, it may be decades before it ever hits 25 battle deaths, or it might be a few years or whatever. But there's this get, there's this sort of uh, pre-war period from the first battle death to what is the year where it hits 25 battle deaths. Um, then I also, because of the way we were looking through GTD to kind of scoop out the terrorist incidents to try to match them up, there were cases where we noticed that there were, that a group that eventually hits the UCDP is in the UCDP, there'd be incidents in GTD that fell outside the conflict years. And so we included those because we wanted to get, we wanted to include everything that we could. So there's a bias in the, in the data on the pre-war years, which I'll talk about this graph in a second. Um, I'm biasing things towards groups that use terrorism because every group is in here for all of the years between its start date and when it hits 25 battle deaths. But then there are extra years that get thrown in for groups where because of what's in GTD, we know that they use terrorism. So even with that bias in favor of the weapon of the weak argument, if you compare the number of incidents in the active UCDP uh, years, so when they're actually waging an over 25 battle death kind of war, and these pre-war years, the number of incidents is vastly and significantly smaller in those early years. So that's countering this kind of argument that you're, that you're making, yeah. Thanks. Was there uh, another piece of that that I didn't answer? That's, fine. That's good. Okay. Uh, Kiri? Um, this is a really fascinating project. And, Thank you. Um, 
the scope of it is something that you know is both really ambitious, but also it looks like you're <laughs> you're well on your way to to, to doing a phenomenal job. Um, the data alone is a labor of love. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it was love, but it was something. <laughs> it was labor, <laughs> um, which I can certainly appreciate. Um, Thanks. So I had I had a couple of questions, and I, I look forward to talking to you more about this later. Um, but from, in, from the, the, the paper on debunking, um, I sort of think about the hypothesis that you go through in terms of like kind of four categories. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so where you have hypotheses about territorial control, about um, actual military strength, about popular support and like public opinion, mm -hmm. um, and then about kind of win-lose, which may or may not actually get folded into kind of military strength. Um, so that's just kind of how it might be useful to organize it in that way, um, rather than doing a, mm -hmm. like a laundry list of hypotheses mm -hmm. um, in the literature review. And it might it might help you when you go through your like four tables. Um, I was curious um, that in your lit review you talk about um, well in, in your discussion of kind of the cliche it's the poor man's war right but there's no measure or hypothesis about financing mm -hmm. um, and so I wondered if that's an additional hypothesis that might be worth testing mm -hmm. um, about the amount of financing or resources that a group has available um, and I'm not steeped enough in the terrorism literature to know which way that that would point but mm -hmm. Um, that's another, it's, a, it's an alternative hypothesis as well that might be worth looking at. Um, and then I had a thought about in your, in your discussion of um, the, the latter part about groups that provide social services mm -hmm. and why state the kind of the conditional, um, the conditional effects of using terrorism um, People not only look at how strong a group is, but whether a group is capable of replacing the government, right, when you're thinking about public support. And so um, the decision to use terrorism as part of, or or take the moral high ground, um, some, some groups that engage in terrorism use, provide social services. Mm -hmm. And intuitively, I would think that a, a a group that does that is less likely to suffer reputational costs for using terrorism because they're providing something else to the civilian population that they're looking at. But I mean, that's I think that's probably worth to be carefully mm -hmm. testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for the suggestion about organizing the hypotheses. That's that's helpful, just as framing. Um, on the rebel financing, this is a, this is an interesting. The variation of something that I have thought about, but I haven't thought about it the way that you've been that you're suggesting. So, um, as part of another project that's part of this big, another paper that's part of this big sprawling thing, I'm looking at the sources of rebel financing. So the idea that um, groups that rely on sort of thinking about like there are three basic categories of where rebels can get their financing from. They can get it from the civilian population. They can get it from external support or they can get it from loot, right? Running diamonds, running drugs, those kinds of things. And they're not mutually exclusive. They can do multiple things there. Um, and the idea, the argument in that paper is that groups who rely on the civilian population will be least likely to use terrorism because 
because it undermines their legitimacy with the local population if they are attacking the local population indiscriminately. Um, they're, they're sort of at a mid-level of legitimacy costs if they're relying on external support. That the external supporter might be very much turned off by the use of terrorism and cut support, um, but some external supporters maybe don't care. And maybe there's a regime type of the, of the external supporter argument there that's following some existing work on, on ex external support and civilian targeting. Um, but the groups who will pay the lowest legitimacy costs uh, are groups that finance through loot because they don't give a damn what people think of them, right? So the, the diamonds don't confer legitimacy. Um, in fact, maybe being particularly brutal helps you in your drug running and your diamond running. Um, so that's something that we're looking at there. But I haven't thought about it in terms of the amount of financing, of how rich a group is, of sort of taking literally this idea of the poor man's war. Um, I'm not sure there's great data on the amount of financing, but there might be at least kind of chunky data of groups that are sort of, you know, Rel rebel groups that are relatively rich, relatively middle, and relatively poor. Um, so I might be able to get it that, at that that way. So that's a useful thing to think about that I haven't thought about. Um, and I have thought a little bit about this idea about groups that provide social services. And there, there are starting to be some good data on this. Not yet compatible with UCDP, but hopefully not too hard to merge it in. Um, uh, and I like that you're tying this to both parts of this, of, of what I talked about today, that there's this idea that is connected to capacity, that if you're capable of acting like a government, that, that is a source of strength. And so if you're more capable of, of doing that, then you should be less likely to use terrorism as a, as a sort of weapon of the weak kind of argument, um, but also connecting it to this legitimacy cost argument. And so, so it kind of fits in this idea that if you have legitimacy in other ways, you kind of there's a store of legitimacy. If you have legitimacy in other ways, you can you can use it. You can get away with using terrorism. Um, I think the counter argument there, and it's not clear to me which one would be true or which one would dominate, is that groups who are more inclined to provide social services are maybe also less inclined to use terrorism. They're just treating civilians better in general, so they're not targeting them and they're helping them. Um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure which way that would go, but that's that's an empirical question. It may be, it may be conflated with the territorial control. Right. Right. As well. Yeah. Okay. See you, Jun. Thank you very much for presenting this paper. Um, Thank you. This is a really interesting paper. I think the convention in wisdom that terrorism is a weapon of the weak. Um, I can see that with this paper published, there will be much more terrification and development. <laughs> of the theory of terrorism. Um, I have a comment particularly related to hypothesis and the problem conclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, first, the first hypothesis is that weaker rebels are militarily, but more they will employ terrorism. Um, I'm curious <coughs> whether this hypothesis correctly <laughs> represents the conventional wisdom of a weapon of the weak. Um, I know nothing about terrorism, but my understanding is that terrorism is just one of the ways um, weak rebels can be used to use their government. However, for rebels to make terrorist activities, they will need money, agents to execute it, organizations that, that can support it, etc. A very weak rebels will not have, may not have such resources to implement it or will fail to make terrorist activities. The weakest groups <coughs> that uh, may not have such capabilities to do terrorist activities um, so I'm curious whether this hypothesis can correctly represent the conventional wisdom. Second, there are some hypotheses that I cannot directly connect to um, the conventional wisdom about terrorism um, as a weapon of the weak. 
for example, hypothesis three about the effect of rough terrain, hypothesis six and seven about the effect of the stage of conflict. I think those hypotheses are less strictly related to the conventional wisdom. And um, then in your results section, this study found a significant effect in the rare rebel groups comprising only 7% of diet years who are at least as strong as the government they fight. I think this, these are the groups that have capabilities to fight with governments as well as have capabilities to use terrorism as their tactics. However, the rest groups, 93%, must have variations of their of the strength, um, but still are weaker than the government, um, which makes them resort to terrorist activities regardless of these variations. So what I'm saying is, um, there are there are 7% of groups which are as strong as the government, and the rest of the group, 93% of the rebel groups, are weaker than the government. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe regardless of the variation of the strength of the weaker group than the government, um, regardless of those um, variations, the 93% of the group still are weaker than the government, which makes um, terrorists, which makes them use terrorism as their tactics. So um, Based on these mixed results, this paper concludes that it finds little empirical support for the conventional wisdom. However, I think this finding in some aspects shows that me, rebel groups that are as strong as government will be less likely to resort to terrorist activities. And I thought this paper might be at least partly supports the conventional wisdom. Great, thank you, that's helpful. Let me, let me respond in, in reverse order. Um, so you're right. So one of the places that I do find some glimmer of support for Weapon of the Week is this idea that the very, very strongest rebels seem to be less likely to use it. And you're right. That is compatible with the Weapon of the Week argument. I think where, um, and if that's all that, that people mean when they say that, that terrorism is a Weapon of the Week, um, is that groups that are weaker than the, than the government they fight, no matter how much weaker, they're more likely to use terrorism than groups that are at parity or higher, then fine, I'll concede the point that terrorism is a weapon of the week in that sense. But then if you get back to Sebastian's point about governments also using terrorism, it kind of falls apart because governments, by definition, can't be weaker than governments because they are governments, right? Um, and, and yet they also indiscriminately uh, target civilians. Um, and, and I also think that when people are making these empirical claims, they are making a claim about more than just these, you know, the difference between the 7% and the other 93%, the fact that there isn't variation, um, that, that being moderately weak does not make you um, less u likely to use terrorism than being very weak is strikes against the weapon of the week argument. Um, uh, and so this is actually, I, I won't go in reverse order because this is actually connected to your first point about um, if groups are too weak to use terrorism. Um, so, uh, Part of the logic behind the weapon of the week argument is that terrorism is relatively cheap and easy. So you don't have to be very strong to do it. Right? Blowing up, you know, planting a bomb in a marketplace is much easier than attacking the government's security forces. Um, and because I'm selecting only groups that are involved in civil war, they're all strong enough to attack the government. 
by definition of being included in my data set. Um, so they're all strong enough to be able to engage in these kinds of attacks. And they all have enough finance. There might be significant variation in how much financing they have, but they all have met the threshold because conducting the terrorist attack, as I've defined it here, is much easier than things that all of these rebel groups by definition already do. Um, so it may be that the very, very weakest groups can't engage in terrorism, but then they're not rebel groups, right? They're not, they're something else. They're, you know, four guys in a back room, you know, conspiring against the government, right? Um, so, I, so I'm not so worried about that, um, that piece of it. Um, on the, and I agree with you that some of, the, some of these hypotheses are sort of more directly um, connected to the weapon of the week argument. But people who make arguments, the, the rough terrain thing comes out of some stuff in, um, um, you know, it's almost actually a footnote in some stuff by Jake Shapiro and, and, um, and Leighton saying that, well, maybe one of the reasons that, uh, that groups, particularly in Africa, are less likely to use terrorism is because they have the advantage of rough terrain, and rough terrain makes insurgency easier. So it's, a, it's maybe a sort of second-order measure of weakness. Um, but the logic that was put forward in that statement was that because rough terrain strengthens the rebel's hand, it makes them less likely to use terrorism. So in that sense, it's a variant. But I agree with you, it's kind of a second-order variant of the of the weapon of the week argument and then actually getting um, back to um, Carrie's point about uh, about external support and financing I in this paper I re I think about external support as a control variable but you could also make an argument that external support is the groups that have external support are stronger by dint of having that support um, and and it's so groups that have external support are not should should by the weapon of the weak logic be less likely to use terrorism and they're not so that's another that's kind of answering your question by getting back to another question but but thanks thank you Nisha um, so Keith I want to ask you just to kind of for some nuance mm -hmm. um, both empirically and theoretically on top of things when I have one uh, question that you may not be able to answer. Um, so the nuance is, um, so empirically, when you, I'm really interested in this uh, reciprocity mm -hmm. piece of this, um, and empirically I'm wondering if you can get at who shoots first, effectively, mm -hmm. um, the timing of this, because I think you need that in order to make a claim about reciprocity, but you haven't really talked about that. And then, theoretically, when thinking about your, the argument you're developing about the legitimacy of ends and also of means, it seems to me that one of the things that you want to build in there, and I don't know if you've thought about this yet, is who's targeted. Mm -hmm. Who's targeting who? Right? Because it's one thing for a rebel group to target the civilian population that's closest to them, but it's another thing for them to target the civilian population that's closest to the government, and that's going to have different effects in terms of audiences and legitimacy, et cetera, um, that, that are going to go in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. And then finally, I wonder if, and I can't think of a case where this would be true, but I wonder if the moral high ground argument ever works for the government. Mm. They certainly try to make it work, right? They're part of what they're doing to try to get, especially in a post 9-11 world, governments try to get external support um, by by playing up the terrorist threat. So it's a branding, like they use it for yeah. branding purposes. And then I guess the question is, 
are they more effective when the rebels actually are engaging in terrorism by this definition as opposed to just when the government says they are? Because the governments always try to call, I mean, almost always call the rebels terrorists. Um, so I guess you could think about it in terms of using that, the government's using the moral high ground argument sincerely and or strategically. I mean, I would guess they're almost always going to end up using it strategically, but it would know, be interesting. It would be an interesting footnote to see if there were, there's ever an attempt to use it sincerely, that, that the governments really are actively exercising restraint. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right. Um, so that would be, you know, Jessica Stanton's work would speak to this. But she's mostly looking at rebel right. restraint, not government. Right, but she at least codes government restraint. Yes. <laughs> so her data would be useful. Um, and so I guess, right, is, the, is a government less likely to target civilians when the rebels are to try to make this argument? Um, possibly. Possibly. Um, Yes. Right. Doesn't work. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 I mean, governments sort of start off with, at least with respect to getting support from other states, they start off with the legitimacy advantage, right? Because because of well everything we know about recognition and sovereign system and blah 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 blah. Um, so they have less of a hard time making the argument that they should be supported. Um, but maybe when it'd be interesting, maybe if like pariah governments try to get out of pariah status um, by reforming and, um, and the other thing I think that would make it complicated is to say is that a response to the fact that the rebels are using terrorism um, in this moral high ground argument or is it just a concession to the war right if they become less repressive over time is it just a concession or an attempt to co-opt right to say well we'll be nicer to this population so that they'll stop supporting this dastardly rebel group right um, but that's an interesting I haven't thought about that at all but I, I will that's a, that's a really interesting argument um, sorry well I was just gonna say we've got 15 minutes and four questions okay do you want to group that's what I was going to propose. Okay. Okay. So I didn't answer your first two questions, but I can come. I we, was could, we can talk you more. From that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a strategic Thank you. <laughs> saving me from Nisha. <laughs> She's going to ask I've me saved, later, you know. I've saved a lot of people from Nisha. <laughs> she knows That's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's group uh, the next uh, two uh, Jihei and Ben. I'd like to go back to your hypothesis about uh, uh, populist split. Mm -hmm. um, so um, my instinct is that, um, or at least um, intuition is that every time a rebel group uses terrorism, popular support for that group will likely decrease. Um, so terrorist groups may, I mean, they may rely less on public support than insurgents, but uh, it's hard to think that public support means nothing for the rebels. So to the extent that uh, popular support means something to the rebel groups, um, and, and, and then it's more likely, uh, so then the group is more likely to use less terrorism as opposed to more terrorism, because um, using more terrorism would um, in turn reduce the level of support mm -hmm. for them. Right, so I'm not sure like how that hypothesis actually works. Um, the way it is that is presented in your in your paper. 
for me, for me, there is a bottom threshold to below which um, rebel groups actually may have some motivation to use more terrorism because public support is already so low that they couldn't care less. But then above that threshold, I mean, they will be motivated to use less because they're afraid that they might lose support of their cause. Regrouping. Okay, uh, Ben. Um, thank you very much for the uh, presentation. I just think it's too quick. Uh, helpful points. I think uh, you asked for. She'll be the judge there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for looking at variables for state support, you could look at aid in the neighborhood. So, are other countries surrounding them getting aid from external actors? That might be a way to proxy that. Um, and also, for looking at the selection issue, uh, if you go through the international security uh, issues on decapitation, there's lots of this giant debate over how, to, how you measure selection effects throughout the terrorism debates can kind of change these results. And it might be helpful trying to find ways to deal with people that are concerned about selection, um, looking at that. And I guess the big question I had then is, in a way to kind of capture Sebastian's point while also trying to save the Weapons of the League argument. Um, so when I was reading this, I put on my Maoist hat. Um, and I was thinking, you know, there you have these different levels of strategy. You kind of start off as the weaker group and you do kind of terrorist attacks and eventually you move up kind of this, there's a step function mm -hmm. of um, which you capture in your paper, kind of different things you do as you go along. So my thinking was, is it necessary that um, it's not that weaker groups use more terrorism, it's that they can't go higher than terrorism. It's that we know them as terrorist groups because we never see them do anything else besides going above terrorism because they fail to get to the point, this need to move to insurgency, to move to territorial control. Um, and I'm not to just throw that out there, I was thinking it'd be interesting, and also another way to help with the selection problem, we could create kind of a step function, a lexical index of first you have, you know, terrorist attacks. Then, in your model, you do insurgent attacks, and then you control territory. And you could do a kind of a um, event history analysis of when you see the first terrorist attack, do you see them move on to the next higher level of conflict? Mm -hmm. And then that might be a way to capture: is mm -hmm. there actually this uh, reciprocal nature of the type of conflict, the type of strategy you're using, and growth into mm -hmm. kind of a new strategy as you go along. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's useful. Thanks. Thank, those are helpful comments, the first comments. So um, stipulated. <laughs> yep. Um, on the Maoist, I think it's a Maoist cap, not a Maoist hat. But um, um, so, yeah, so, so that's kind of a lot of people cite Mao when they're yeah. making this kind of idea that you use terrorism early on and then you move on. So, two things of note about that. One is that Mao actually thought that terrorism, as I'm defining it here, was a terrible idea and should never be used and would make not allow you to move to the next level because you need, you know, you need the, the water in which to swim as, as fish. You need popular support. And for exactly um, the reasons Jihei was saying, uh, terrorism, indiscriminate attacks on, ter on civilians would not allow you to move to the next step. So people are kind of misusing Mao when they make this argument. Um, but then empirically, this is the sort of strongest argument against that. So this is the, you know, this is the, I should, I should flip these around because this is actually temporarily prior to this. Um, but, you know, this is the early stages before groups have made it to the point of a 25 battle death insurgency. Um, and they're using a lot less terrorism than they are once they get to this higher level. I guess my point would be that if you're conflating it all, like, so all the groups then are conflated in that analysis and instead of stripping out the groups that actually eventually do get, a, so. Uh, right, so there's this yeah. selection, there's this selection yeah. effect, right? So groups that never make it beyond <laughs> just uh, terrorist attacks, um, if this graduation theory actually yeah. holds, 
the groups that never make it past that first group don't get into my data. So that's right. That's the sort of yeah. ca big caveat about the selective effect. And I think the only way to get around that is to find data sets where we do have lower levels of conflict, including the including the sort of would-be conflicts that never got off the ground. Um, and so there's something like the ACLED data, you can do this for some, some regions, some time periods. It's just not as expand, it doesn't cover the whole globe, it doesn't cover this whole um, time period, but there are some ways to try to, to get around that. Um, but you're right, that's, that's the core of the selection, the, the remaining selection bias problem in this paper. Um, to respond to Jihei's question, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure I understood the question, but I think Part of what you're saying is that groups that, that because terrorism undermines popular support, that, and that's basically the argument of the, sorry, we keep moving around <laughs> to see each other. Um, that's, that is the legitimacy cost argument, that if you use terrorism, you undermine your own popular support. So I completely agree with that. That's kind of fundamental to my thinking and why I think terrorism is not effective in general. Um, but people who make the argument that terrorism is a weapon of the weak make this argument that groups that have lower levels of popular support will be more likely to use terrorism. Now, interestingly, a lot of the literature argues that, that groups are using terrorism to generate popular support, which seems like even dumber than the general weapon of the week argument to me. Um, there may be some, you know, some context in which being showing that you can inflict damage on the enemy or something it garners popular support. But if you think about using terrorism relative to other things that rebel groups could do, like actually attacking the government directly, it's not clear to me at all how using terrorism ever generates popular support. So I, I find the whole argument kind of illogical to begin with, but it's made, and so that's why I test it. But, but there's a connection here between these two parts of the paper, right? So in, the, in the, the government abuse, or two parts of the project, two papers that are part of the project, the government abuse and terrorism, part of what I'm looking at is this kind of store of legitimacy and popular support is, is a way to try to, to, try to measure that, um, as is provision of social services. So I, so I agree with the, the uh, sentiment behind your comment entirely. Okay, so I'm going to recognize myself real okay. quickly. Oh, go, go to, to the, the whiteboard. Way. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so the that's the wow yep. trend line. So two questions, uh, and I think I'm channeling uh, Siok Jun. Uh, on one of these questions. What if the, uh, the relationship, uh, the wow relationship, is actually curvilinear rather mm -hmm. than, uh, you know, uh, what's the opposite of monotonic? Um, in any case, you get, yep. uh, you get the point linear. there. Linear. Well, yeah, linear, but linear in a, in a downward direction. Secondly, um, by looking at incidents of uh, terrorism um, among rebel groups in a civil war, uh, aren't you in effect censoring mm -hmm. the data and some of the critical data um, with the really weak terrorist groups? Because if you're strong enough to mm -hmm. uh, have a rebel group, uh, you're certainly uh, further down uh, the uh, strength axis um, than the four guys in the uh, mm -hmm. you know in the back room. Yep. Uh, and is, could that be problematic? Yes, so that's, so that's the selection, the remaining selection problem, right? So when I started this project, 
I was looking only at full-scale civil wars. So I was only out here. And so now I've gone to 25 battle deaths, so I've gotten like this chunk, but I don't have that. I don't have these sort of the very, very lowest levels of conflict. So yeah, that's exactly the selection. That, that's the big caveat here, that there's still that selection project. So the, so the empirical question is, down here, is there more terrorism than in here? And we don't know. Um, my guess is uh, maybe, but also more nonviolence and more you know, other, other kinds of political contestation down here as well. Um, I like thinking about this as the curvilinear. So, um, so for one thing that the answer to the second part helps me answer the first part, the fact that I've selected here means both of these arguments should show a generally downward trajectory that I don't see. So at least this part of the curve isn't true empirically, because that's the part of the curve that I'm looking at. Um, I'm curious what the, is, is the logic but behind the curve? you're using a linear estimator, not a curve linear estimator, right? So if it, if it was really a cur okay. curve linear relationship, you know, you wouldn't see I'm not that. picking up this yeah. piece. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. That's that's certainly easy to check with a nonlinear estimator. Um, so is the idea um, is the idea for why it would be curvilinear? Is this sort of the the what I referred to as hypothesis one a, which is was from Nisha's comments on an earlier version of this paper that down here you're you're too weak even to conduct terrorism? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, these you have to have a certain, you know, base capabilities to to do anything. Yeah. Um, but by definition, so here again, the selection effect helps because by definition, if you're in this data set, you have the capability to conduct terrorism. If you have the capability to wage a conflict that hits 25 battle deaths, you're attacking some government, and it's not just one-sided violence. You're attacking the military. You're causing battle deaths. So you're causing government soldiers to die. If you can do that, you can leave a bomb in a marketplace because terrorism is cheap and easy, that, which is the whole logic behind right, weapon of the week. The problem with the weapon of the week argument is that if it's cheap and easy, everybody should do it, not just the weak groups. Yeah, so then I guess the question is the, uh, you know, the relative judgment about strength um, and whether you, know, you would uh, consider uh, rebel groups as, uh, as strong. Um, you know, certainly they're not as strong in most cases as um, Sue Jun pointed out as uh, that you know as government uh, military forces, but on the other hand, it's that you know the sort of black hole to the left of the whole thing, you know where the really weak groups are and right. where we don't have the data because you've in a sense selected data yeah. Yeah. Uh, from strong groups. Yes, not in a sense, quite yeah, quite quite um, admittedly, because because this is the only place where I have data on both the groups that use terrorism and the groups that don't. So we just don't know in here. Not that it's unknowable, we just don't, in this, in this setup, I just don't have the data to do it. It's a known unknown. It's a known unknown. Uh, Sarah Peters, I violated my stricture about uh, grouping oh, questions. Oh, sorry, so no, you, I did by answering. Yeah, and you connived uh, you with me in doing <laughs> that, but we should let Sarah get the uh, penultimate word out, because uh, Paige, you'll let the last word. All right. Um, so I was wondering if you could very briefly um, say something about how you determined whether the attacks were deliberately indiscriminate versus not, because mm -hmm. it seems like the line between those two is probably a lot blurrier in a lot of cases mm -hmm. the way you portrayed it. 
um, which kind of leads me to a broader question that I've always wondered about. Um, what is the meaningful distinction of terrorism as a form of violence compared to other forms of violence against civilians? And Sorry, I, I missed a word. Why do we want to know? Like, what's the meaningful distinction of terrorism compared to other forms of violence? Other forms of violence against civilians. Like, okay, why, why good question. Why do we want to know about it? Why do we care? Um, okay. As, as like, okay. Um, let me answer the second one first, because otherwise I'll forget that you asked it. Because um, the, the answer to the, sec the first one is here, and so that'll remind me. Um, so why do we care about it? So I think, um, I think we care about it for two reasons. Partly we care about it because since 9-11, it's you know, almost all anybody talks about <laughs> in policy circles, right? This is the big threat, is terrorism. Um, and uh, so I care about it in part because I think a lot of the conversation about terrorism is misguided in a lot of ways, partly in the way that te terrorism is defined so sloppily um, and uh, in sort of ways that are politically biased. Um, and that just irks me, and so <laughs> that makes me motivated to work on it. Um, uh, but, um, and, and because I think a lot of what we think we know about terrorism, we know only by looking at the terrorist cases and not the non-terrorist cases. So we can say that terrorism is a weapon of the weak because look, all the groups that use it are weak. But huh, lots of groups that are really, really weak aren't using terrorism. So what, you know, right? So those are the kinds of things that I think make it important to, to study it more systematically than is currently done. The terrorism literature is really like it's low-hanging fruit. It's really it's really dreadful most of it, um, methodologically, um, and I don't just mean like whether or not it's using quantitative methods. It's just like basic things about research design, like having variables that vary and stuff like that, is is missing from a lot of it. Not all of it. It's gotten a lot better, um, but I think we also care about it normatively, and this this gets to sort of what, why the distinction between this type of violence against civilians versus other kinds of violence against civilians. Um, so you know, all violence against civilians is is bad and against international law. Um, but I think there is something normatively different about targeting somebody who's collaborating with the other side, targeting somebody because of something that they did and that they have a choice about doing, and targeting somebody where it's deliberately random and you're deliberately targeting people who had no nothing they did or could do could make them safe from that attack. So that's part of what makes terrorism so terrifying, right? There's nothing you can do to avoid it. You're just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's, it's inherently random. Um, so I do think there is sort of an extra moral opprobrium, opprobrium to the deliberately indiscriminate attack um, that makes it worthy of study in its own right. Um, and it gets lumped in the literature in because because we've had data, decent data on on civilian targeting and one-sided violence. They, these things haven't been studied separately, and it's possible that they have the same causes and consequences. But my guess is that they have rather different causes and consequences, and so that's part of why I want to try to separate them. Um, then, in terms of empirically, how am I trying to you know what do I do to separate the deliberately indiscriminate from the discriminate? So this is hard. Um, the GTD data unhelpfully does not have a you know, discriminate variable. Um, and so what I've done here is, make this bigger so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, so GTD codes a whole bunch of different attack types. And some of them, you know, assassination is by definition discriminate. So I rule that out of my definition. Um, some of the kinds of attacks, I think, you know, kidnapping and uh, more likely to be discriminate. Um, whereas kind of bombs and armed assaults are more likely to be 
um, indiscriminate. And so this is the, th so the things that are, I've got the, as I said, there are these two measures. There's the more, more restrictive and the less restrictive. So in one of them, I include all of the attack types that are checked here. And the more restrictive, I focus just on the armed assault and uh, bombing, uh, where's my clicker? Um, so that's one cut at trying to pull out some of the discriminate attacks. But the, I think the more important um, part is to think about the target types so there's lots of stuff in GTD that just isn't civilian targeting. Um, targeting, you know, there are lots of attacks on the military that are in GTD. So that's outside of my definition. Um, attacks on police. Um, government can be civilians working in the government. But again, it, if you're targeting a government official, that's likely to be pretty discriminate, not indiscriminate. Um, so, th so these are attack types that are just excluded from my measure altogether. Um, and then I look at the subtypes. Again, there are a lot, as you say, there are a lot of judgment calls here about whether a particular subtype should be included or not as discriminant and indiscriminate. And that's the reason to have these two different measures. So one of them, when in doubt, I threw it in, and one of them, when in doubt, I, took, I, I excluded it so that you can see the robustness of results to these two. It makes everything very unwieldy because between the different matching levels, uh, and these different more, and you know, I end up with eight versions of the dependent variable. Then there are four different ways to count. So you get like a gazillion dependent variables. And if you ran all those robustness checks, you'd have thousands and thousands of pages of, of results to sort through. But, but I also wanted this data set to be flexible for other researchers to use. So I'm not advocating that people use all of them, um, but to pick a few, like a fairly restrictive one and a fairly unrestrictive one to see how much it matters. Like, do these judgment calls matter? Um, so here you can see, um, so for example, you know, an attack on a restaurant or a bar or cafe. Now that could be a discriminated attack. There was somebody in that cafe who was targeted. Um, but it's going to be more likely to be an indiscriminate attack than, than say, an attack against a multinational corporation. Um, then one of the other ways that I, so that's that set there. Here's some more of the target. I won't, I won't go through all of these. But you can see, like, all of these things are included in the less restrictive one, but I take some of them out in the more restrictive one. Um, another way that I've tried to get at the more indiscriminate attacks um, is lots and lots of the attacks in GTD, uh, only one person is killed. And so those are, or one or maybe, you know, two people are killed. Those are more likely to be discriminate attacks. And when you go into the GTD, for the more recent GTD events, I forget when they start this, it's sometime in the 90s, I think, they actually include a little description of the attack. And so, you know, I scooped all this stuff out and then I, I read some of them myself and had RAs read a bunch of them to say, of the things that we're scooping up, when you read the description, does it actually seem like an indiscriminate attack? And of the things that we didn't scoop up are some of them, you know, like what are we missing and what are we including? Um, and lots of the attacks with zero or one especially one fatality, it turns out it's like, you know, it's listed as an attack on, um, on a cafe um, and it's a bomb, but in the description it's, you know, the person who was killed was a government official, even though for some reason not attack, not listed as an attack on the government. So part of the use of the, the mass fatalities of at least uh, uh, four or more, sorry, five or more people being killed is a way to get at the more indiscriminate attacks. Um, not perfect, but sort of between all of these ways, I, I think I'm excluding most but not all of the discriminate attacks and including most but not all of the indiscriminate ones. Great. Well, Paige, we've been working for over a year to uh, get you out. <laughs>
Thanks well, for being we patient. We finally got you out, and it was uh, definitely worth the wait. So please uh, join me in uh, giving Paige Fortner a warm round of If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.